0: From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. While Trump is very good at finding people's psychological weak points, he's extremely
1: bad at understanding institutions and institutional power. And that's how he lost this whole shutdown fight, was he never understood how powerful the House of Representatives can be when it wants to be.
0: That's David Frum. He's a writer and editor at The Atlantic and author of many books, including most recently, Trumpocracy, the corruption of the American Republic. I speak with him about what Trump is actually good at, the start of the 2020 campaign, and debating Steve Bannon. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, stay tuned, listeners. Throughout the past year, you've heard me talk about the ups and downs of writing a book. You've been here the whole time on this often arduous journey. So join me in the final steps and pre-order your own copy of this labor of love, at doingjusticebook.com. Actually, maybe it's a good Valentine's Day present for the people in your life who love justice. You'll find various options, whether you need your two-day shipping or want it from your favorite local independent bookseller. And for those of you who become accustomed to my voice in your ear, there's an audiobook. Order now at doingjusticebook.com and the book or audiobook will be on its way to you this March 19th. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. My name is Manuel, and I'm calling from San Jose, California. I, first of all, thank you for all the work you do in the podcast and helping us make sense of all of this madness. And thank you also for the Cafe Insider podcast. If there are any of my fellow listeners who have not signed up, I strongly recommend it. It's been very helpful.
1: My question is with the news
0: that Matt Whitaker came out today saying he's been briefed on the special counsel investigation and expects it it to be wrapped up soon. I'm wondering if uh, there's any cause for concern, anything that he could do to kind of subvert the investigation as it wraps up or um, any of the reporting or the findings. I appreciate it, and have a great day. Manuel, thanks for your question, and, and thanks for the kind words about the Insider Podcast. So I first heard the news, like many other people might have, through an alert in my case, an alert from the Wall Street Journal on email. And then I saw some tweets sort of reporting breathlessly that Matt Whitaker announced in some form that the Mueller investigation was wrapping up. And I got to say, having now watched the video and thought about it and heard other people speak about it, that, you know, maybe the first reaction to that quote-unquote announcement, which wasn't really an announcement, was maybe overblown. There's lots of reasons to think that the Mueller investigation and not just the investigation, but the prosecutions that are still pending, will take some more time to resolve. There's that news from a few weeks ago that the grand jury was extended for six months. Doesn't mean you have to go the whole six months, but that was, you know, it's one data point. You had literally just a few days ago, the indictment of Roger Stone. We don't know if that will lead to cooperation, although probably not, but it could. And that could lead, you know, to other shoes dropping. In any event, if he proclaims his innocence and goes to trial, you know, the drama of that process will unfold over the course of months, not days or weeks. Then, if you actually watch the video, as I have a couple of times of Matt Whitaker, I believe he was talking about some other thing, and then he gets asked a couple of questions about the Mueller investigation, and his answer seems off the cuff. It doesn't seem prepared. He kind of stammers his way through it. It's not clear what he means by soon. I don't know if that means weeks or if that means months. I mean, I don't think anybody thinks it's going to drag on for years. So I wouldn't put too much stock in it, and I'm not the only one who's had that reaction, ranging from you know, people like Nancy Pelosi, who said uh, when she was grabbed by a reporter in the Capitol, you know, I prefer to hear Bob Mueller speak for himself on this. And I believe that former Attorney General Michael B. Mukasey was on television in the last couple of days, also saying uh, he doesn't necessarily believe what Matt Whitaker said. So I think it was an off-the-cuff remark that was not well put. He seemed nervous actually delivering it. And so the other signs point to there being more time that the Mueller investigation needs. On the question of whether or not. Whitaker can stop things or stymie the investigation in some way. That has been a concern of a lot of people. I think, though, that so many folks are watching. Rod Rosenstein is still there and has the the power of his voice. And we still have an upcoming confirmation hearing of Bill Barr that for someone to take extraordinary action to quell the investigation before Bill Barr gets his confirmation vote seems, even in this unpredictable administration, seems really, really far-fetched. So I would worry a little bit more about what happens after there's an Attorney General bar, which seems likely. And hopefully Congress will consider, as some senators have been hoping that they will, uh, bills that will protect Bob Mueller and his investigation.
1: Hi, Preet. This is Kathy Finnerty from Ithaca, New York. I'm a scientist by trade and have never read an indictment in my life until two years ago. So as I've been reading these indictments, I have a question for you. When they're referring to dates, Quite often, or maybe even all the time, like for a certain date, it's described as on or about. And I'm wondering if you can explain why that is, especially for dates where you can verify that something happened, like testimony before a House committee. So if you could explain that, I'd appreciate it. Love your show. Bye.
0: Kathy, thanks for your question. I'm glad you're reading the indictments. I urge everyone to read these, these precious historical artifacts not artifacts yet, but we'll will be one day. So lawyers generally, and prosecutors specifically, are very risk-averse, and although they love precision, they also like to hedge. And so when you go to trial on a set of allegations that are very specifically drawn out, you don't want there to be any variance between what you have alleged as to time, place, manner, date, anything else, from what the proof is that you show at trial. And so the convention must have developed some time ago That whenever you have a date, in case there's an error or in case a witness's recollection differs or two witnesses have a different recollection of a date that you say honor about. For the same reason that if you read any indictment out of the Southern District of New York, we also had another convention, which was we would talk about crimes and we would refer to them happening in the Southern District of New York and elsewhere. So you want to be able to cover any alteration as between the allegation and the indictment and what proof comes into court. You're right that there are some dates that are so certain and so clear and so verifiable that it seems silly to say honor about but then i suppose you don't want to have some dates that you recite without honor about and some dates that you have an honor about you know modifier so for consistency even though it looks kind of silly in some instances that's why prosecutors do that this next question comes in a tweet from user adam smith whose twitter handle instead of being the invisible hand is al smith uh, so he asks, at Preet Bharara, hashtag ask Preet, with Kamala Harris in the news this week, in your opinion, what is it that makes former prosecutors such frequent and compelling candidates for national office? Well, you know, I guess that's an interesting question. Um, but one reason that you find, I think, former prosecutors running for office is that many of them, most of them, if not all of them, have demonstrated a commitment to public service. And by the way, you know, your presumption is not necessarily always accurate with respect to Kamala Harris as Ann Milgram and I talked about on the Insider podcast, there are some people on the progressive side of the uh, spectrum who think the prosecutors don't make good candidates for national office or for public office. My view is, although I am myself not interested in the indefinite future for running for office and turned down an opportunity in the last year, as you may know, to run for attorney general in New York, that the best prosecutors, and they're, they're not all perfect, and even the good ones make mistakes and errors, and hopefully they own up to them, and also evolve in their thinking about criminal justice issues over time. But the people who are prosecutors have, A, been vetted, had their backgrounds checked, so they're, you know, they tend not to have skeletons in their closet. They tend to have, you know, lived in a way that can withstand scrutiny. That's one. Second, they're committed to the public good. And whether or not you like prosecutors or don't like prosecutors, the ones that I know that are good and honest and honorable are dedicated to public service and and serving in public office in elective office as a form of public service. Also, depending on what party you're running from, as David Frum and I discussed a little bit in the interview that you'll hear, it's sometimes a good credential for a Democrat who might otherwise, depending on the constituency in the general election, be accused, as has often happened, be accused of being soft on crime or weak. Having the prosecutorial credential is helpful. You know, I'm recalling, as I'm answering your question now, that you know, John Kerry, when he ran, although he didn't win, when he ran in the general election, talked a lot about how he was a former prosecutor. Chris Christie, in many interviews I saw and in debates during the election, talked often about, even though he didn't come close to getting the nomination for the Republicans, he talked, I think, almost as much about his experience as U.S. attorney as he did about his experience as governor. Because you're given the opportunity to talk about sort of elemental things, public safety, uh, national security public order, law and order, the Constitution, neutrality, doing good. Those are all good things that sound good and I think are good. And also, if you're a successful prosecutor and you run a prosecutor's office, typically, you've learned good communication skills. And you've learned how to boil down complicated things simply. I mean, I hope I have that skill, (laughs) even though I'm not using it to run for office, but to entertain you all in this podcast. Uh, You know, you can break things down. And sometimes the people who have had experience in court and had experience in talking to the public about complicated cases and criminal actions they've taken, know how to do that better than folks who have been in some other lines of work. So I think the combination of skill, a public view of what the prosecutor's role is, and how we can sort of round out a candidate are all compelling reasons why they sometimes become good candidates for public office. But not all. You know, I suppose in some ways, there's a parallel to why veterans make compelling candidates for national office, too. It shows a commitment to service, to serving the country, and you know to large swaths of the population, it shows a certain kind of strength, being a prosecutor, being a military veteran. It may not be more complicated than that. This next question is apparently about the Roger Stone indictment and arrest. It comes from Twitter user Very Vito, who says, I keep seeing the term process crime used to downplay charges brought by the Mueller investigation to date. Is this a real category of law or just a euphemism for rich person crime? Hashtag askpreet. Hi, Vito. Thanks for your question. I've been scratching my head a little bit over this also, this category of, of process crime. I'm not aware of any place in any statute book or any codified rules anywhere that there's some separate special category of crime that we call process crimes. Typically, when people have been using the term, whether it's Roger Stone and his allies talking about his arrest on charges of obstruction lying to Congress and witness tampering, it seems to me the strategy is to sort of minimize uh, the crime and to say, well, this is not really about anything of substance, it's just about process. And if you practice law for any period of time, especially as a prosecutor, you understand that those two things bleed together. And so, you know, if you kill a witness, I'm not saying he did, if you kill a witness and you're charged with obstruction in connection with that, according to these people's definition, that would be a, a process crime and somehow less serious. It's not less serious. If you're somebody who, um, I suppose, is taking a bribe in order to vote a particular way, I suppose by some stretch of the imagination you could call that a process crime. So I don't know exactly what that means. I don't use that terminology. Most prosecutors I know don't use that terminology. In fairness to the folks who are saying these crimes are not so serious, they are serious, but one measure of examining where on the scale of seriousness a crime is, is to simply take an objective look at what the sentencing guidelines say about what term of punishment you get if you're convicted of one of those crimes. And it is true, even though I and other prosecutors and lots of other folks say over and over and over again, lying to the FBI is serious. It is. Lying to Congress is serious. It is. But the penalties attached to those kinds of crimes are, in fact, less than some other things like money laundering or robbery or tax evasion, depending on the amount of tax that has been avoided. And so we saw with Michael Flynn, for example that the guidelines recommendation was zero to six months, especially if you have no criminal history. The other thing I'll say is, you know, within the range of what people say are process crimes, uh, there are more and less serious, although I don't need to adopt the term, there are more and less serious crimes. I suppose at one end of the spectrum is, you know, a single false statement in passing to an FBI agent about something that's sort of not the most central aspect of the investigation and didn't confound their investigation. But at the other end of the spectrum, you can talk about the destruction of documents. You can talk about threats to witnesses in a more serious way than even Roger Stone did with respect to Randy Credico or person two in the indictment that was filed last week. Those are serious things. And so, you know, don't be fooled by people who try to use euphemisms and language to try to minimize some aspect of the crime. They're serious. There's a range of seriousness, but they're not to be, I think, minimized. You know, and here's the other thing about the whole Roger Stone strategy, which doesn't seem to be about fighting the allegations as such, but engaging in a massive amount of public relations and going on television. And and even moments after he first faced the charges in federal court in Florida, he comes out, he does the the Nixon victory salute, the victory sign, um, loves the attention, even though he's being heckled, and even though people are chanting at him on the courthouse steps. And he says something that's very telling about how he thinks about himself and how he's conducted himself throughout his life. And he says, the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about, which, of course, is a line that he borrowed from the late, great Oscar Wilde, who said, there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. So watch and listen with a wary eye and ear all the things you hear at the Roger Stone camp. And a shout out to insider listener, Laura Bennett, who pointed out that that's where the original phrase comes from. And, and Anne and I actually talk a bit more about Stone generally on the Insider podcast. As many of you know, we recently launched a subscription service to help you make sense of what's happening as we live through these historic times. It is an opportunity to go in depth on the most pressing issues at the intersection of law and politics. Rest assured, the Stay Tuned podcast will continue to be free. But the Cafe Insider membership service allows you to support our work, so we can keep doing what we do. So if you'd like to hear Anne and me break down the rest of the stone news and other issues, join Cafe Insider. There's more to come, and we'll be here for the wild ride. Go to cafe.com slash insider to become a member today. That's cafe.com slash insider. My guest this week is David Frum. He's a writer and editor at The Atlantic and author of nine books, including most recently Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. He was a speechwriter and special assistant in President George W. Bush's administration and served as a senior advisor to Rudy Giuliani's presidential campaign. Long a leading conservative voice, he is an outspoken critic of President Trump. I speak with him about reaching soft Trump voters, mastering the language of politics, and the prospect of a Howard Schultz presidential run. That's coming up. Stay tuned. No one should feel unsafe at home, period. Fear has no place in a place like the home. That's been Simply Safe's mission from day one. You'll even see a commercial about it during the big game this Sunday. Be sure to check it out. SimpliSafe blankets your whole home with protection. Sounds very cozy, actually. Around-the-clock professional monitoring. makes sure police are on the way when you need them. And the security sensors are tiny, blending in with your home so you won't notice them. The Verge calls SimpliSafe the best home security, and it's a wire cutter top pick. As more than 3 million SimpliSafe customers already know, it feels good to fear less. So protect your home today and get free shipping on any system order as a Stay Tuned with Preet listener. Just visit simplysafecom slash Preet. That's simplysafe.comslash slash Preet. Valentine's Day is around the corner, and it's not truly going to feel like Valentine's unless there's a surprise bouquet of roses involved. Some people go for a November surprise, but February surprises are probably better. And this season... The biggest and brightest roses are only found at 1-800-Flowers.com. Right now, when you order early, 1-800-Flowers has amazing deals on vibrant and romantic Valentine's Rose bouquets, arrangements, and more, starting at just $29.99. There are so many choices on their site, and having those flowers delivered to my door will make my life just a little easier in a couple of weeks. No chance I'm grabbing a last-minute bunch this year. Roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness and the amazement of whoever you're giving them to. Gorgeous Valentine's bouquets and arrangements start at $29.99. Just pick your delivery date and let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. To order Valentine's bouquets, arrangements, and more, starting at $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, and enter code PREET. Order today and save at 1-800-Flowers.com, code PREET. David Frum, welcome to the show.
1: What a pleasure to be here.
0: So I, as I was telling you before we started, it's long overdue, you're being on, stay tuned. I have been uh, borrowing your thoughts, lines. But my first, the first thing I will say is, one of the things I enjoy is your Twitter feed. And we all, we all have a love-hate relationship right. with Twitter, and I often talk with guests who have Twitter feed, active Twitter feeds like I do. What you think about it, and I guess my, my question is, you're a fairly erudite guy. You write long commentary. You're highly educated. You've written, I believe, nine books. Yeah. What the hell is a guy like you doing on Twitter?
1: Well, it is kind of a sobering reflection that it turns out that of all the literary forms that have ever been invented, the one you turn out to be good at is <laughs> the dumbest. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. Twitter is a dangerous tool. Yes. Um, it is an opportunity to end your career in a second. I have over the years, tried to develop some rules as to how to use it productively and non-self-destructively. Can't claim I've always adhered to these rules. So what are some of the rules? One of the most important rules is no arguments about arguments. That is, one of the things that happens on the Twitter is you'll say something and somebody else will say, well, you didn't say a different thing about a different subject. To be focused on what you're talking about and what you're going to do there and not to get drawn into a lot of arguments – Second, always keep your cool. Of course, you should never drink and drive. But second only to not drinking and driving is not drinking and doing Twitter. And never do it when you're in a situation of emotional uh, distress of any kind. And then finally, um, understand that the purpose of Twitter is – it's it's a flow of information. You should think of it as being like your um, your ticker tape or your your information feed. Follow institutions, Reuters, and com- and institutions like that, and then follow people who really know what they're talking about. And if you do that, it can be a source of an enormous value. And you can, by the way, develop friendships with people all across the world whom
0: you've never met, uh, with whom you have an affinity, and and from whom you can learn. Well, that's 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 one of the the nice nice things. I had a Twitter exchange with Mark Hamill, you know, aka Luke Skywalker. Yes. I thought. Only in the modern universe is that possible. Can that happen? Have you ever uh, tweeted in anger? I have a few times,
1: um, and I've always regretted it. And the other thing I try to be disciplined about is never trying to get the last word. I think of Twitter as television. And the reason you go on television, including shows you might not yourself watch, is to talk to the people who are watching. You're not talking to the host. You're not really talking to the other guests. You're talking to people on the other side of the camera. Um, You're here for them. One last thing and this, this is maybe of use to a wider public, is those of us who grew up with television always had a difference between those who grew up before television because we understood there were made-for-TV moments. Daniel Boorstin wrote a great book in the early 60s called The Pseudo Event about the made-for-TV moment and we learned to be suspicious of made-for-TV moments. Um, they're not real and they're, they're inherently manipulative. Now, we're on the older side. And we are victims often of made for social media moments that are intended to be manipulative. Right. And I think I think of this very much with the Covington Catholic School encounter. And I, this was something I, I it flew up, it blew up. A, and the the moment I said, I realized I have no idea what actually happened here. What, what I can see is this clip is not a represent. Whatever happened here, this clip is not an accurate representation of it. So be very very careful. And a lot of people fell into it because just as our parents didn't understand that TV wasn't real, we often have a hard time understanding that social media is not real.
0: Although it's, it's begin- I wasn't planning to spend this, this amount of time on Twitter, but I think it's actually interesting and important for all the reasons we've mentioned, but also because it's a huge force in politics. I had Ian Bremmer on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he takes the position, and it's not an unusual position, that but for Twitter, Donald Trump doesn't get elected. And on the other side of the political spectrum... Uh, there're lots of folks who are who are saying how brilliant at least with respect to social media uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is so much so that it has been reported and she confirmed it that she was asked to explain to the Democratic caucus in the house how to use Twitter effectively so it's not some random thing it's 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 as powerful you know your analogy to tv is is a good one because for decades historians have been trying to figure out the impact of television on races and the famous Nixon Kennedy debate in 60 uh, where the, the conventional wisdom is, if you watched it on television, you thought that Kennedy won. If you listen to it on the radio, you thought that Nixon won. And yeah. Twitter seems to be the new sort of forum where political careers go to thrive or die.
1: Well, this, this opening is maybe a way to segue to something from the world of the social into the world of the real. I, I have a mild dissent from both of those assessments. Mm-hmm. For Donald Trump, but for Twitter, if they had, if he had surrendered it, as he said he would on the day he became president or even better for him, on the day he declared for president. I think he would be much more popular today. I think Twitter has been an anchor, an anchor around his neck.
0: During, um, during the course of the presidency, which is sep- separate of, from yeah, the campaign. E- and
1: also even from the campaign yeah. because you know, the economy is pretty good and it's especially been pretty good for the kind of upper middle, lower upper income folks who are the bedrock of the Republican Party. In all kinds of, you know, comfortable suburbs far away from, you know, Washington and New York, there are people who are normal Republicans not paying a lot of attention to politics who would, who should be able to say, you know, times are pretty good. The country is more or less at peace. Uh, if I don't live in New Jersey or Southern California, I got a tax cut. Uh, I don't like the guy's history or record, but he seems fine if he would just keep his mouth shut. But instead, every day, he is on your phone reminding you of – that he is a seriously deformed <laughs> personality who might start a nuclear war by mistake.
0: But would he and, be as popular with his base without Twitter?
1: Uh, yeah, because his base are not so online. Mm-hmm. The core, his core support, watch TV. Um, his soft support are online and and so he hurts himself with his soft support, and he 's done nothing for his core support and Trump deludes himself, but he Trump is a very poor assessor self assessor um so i don't think he I think Twitter has been nothing but bad news for him for alexandria casio cortez it's um more complicated because Donald Trump was already one of the most famous people in the world before Twitter was ever invented, right So she is a newcomer um, who becomes a star by winning this come from behind uh, internal party victory. And social media helps her, but I think the big thing in her stardom was not her Twitter. It was being attacked on Twitter by someone who found this clip that she and her friends did dancing in college oh, yeah. that looked to anybody like, you know, the most wholesome way. <laughs> um, I, I went to college in the late '70s and early '80s, and thank God there. Were not, I mean, just, so, so somebody takes this moment of of happiness, puts it on as if to attack, and that I think was her big social media win, but you can't plan that. You can never plan an incompetent and malicious attack on you. Just you have to understand the, li- the, the potential of these things, but also their, their limit. And, and one of the things that I think the next two years of the Donald Trump presidency are going to remind us is the laws of political gravity are all there. And we also, those of us who are much more online need to remember that it is still true that Facebook and YouTube, not Twitter, are the two most important social media in America. And by the way, the two most important media companies in america if you think that the new york times and the atlantic and the cbs evening news and cnn and Fo- even fox news and msnbc are the media and don't bear in mind that for most people in this country and for certainly most people who are influenced by the media the media mean facebook and youtube videos
0: yeah no that's to- that's exactly true so let's let's move on from the first institution of american democracy we've been discussing twitter to the other <laughs> institutions of democracy and I, I think i mentioned at the beginning that i have been uh, uh, pilfering Some of you are deep thinking for a couple of years now. And um, there was the occasion of my firing almost two years ago, and then I got an invitation to go speak at Oxford. And feeling very ignorant of many things and not having been in the role to talk about anything other than sort of prosecutions as the U.S. attorney and and asked to speak about, you know, the state of American institutions beyond just law enforcement, I started thinking about what I believed to be the state of affairs, with respect to the media, with respect to the courts, with respect to Congress, and with respect to the executive branch. And this is, you know, early on, this is in, in May of, of 2017, given uh, the alarm bells that a lot of people were sounding because of the way the president was dealing with those institutions. And I started to write uh, my remarks, and I had a, you know, a view of how strong uh, or weak those institutions were and generally thought they were pretty strong other than the law enforcement function, which I think is being undermined. And I came across a a great piece of yours and I found myself thinking, um, well, David Frum says it's a lot better than I do. So I'm going to liberally quote from you with with attribution. But that was a couple of years ago. Can we just go through them for a second? Sure. So the judiciary, you know, you you do a lot of writing, but you're a trained lawyer and you think about not just, you know, politics and government generally, but also the courts specifically. How, How are the courts holding up in a world where some people think there's an onslaught against the independent judiciary, so so much so that John Roberts, who's a pretty laconic guy, decided he needed to say something about it.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I I hesitate to speak about any of these things. I mean, you're a practitioner, and when you say you, you are new to speaking, I mean, the mark of a good prosecutor is the less you say, the better. You have a whole lifetime of learning not to say things as part of your job, to unsay things. And so you've stepped into this new role, and you've excelled at it. And I, I,
0: I hope it's been comfortable for you. Uh, it's been okay. I, it's been, it's been <laughs> okay. Uh, but I have, I have I have good days, and you know, and and then other kinds of days.
1: But it is like like moving from driving in the right hand side of the road to a left hand side of
0: the road. System. Yes. <laughs> with like a, with a patch over one eye, uh, and bad music blaring on the on the radio. Um, so I, I would say the two most robust parts
1: have been the federal judiciary and the tradi- the legacy media have both done a pretty good job in the trump years but the, the legal system as a whole is under enormous pressure and even the federal judiciary has a problem which is that trump has found a weak spot that he's able to exploit which is you know our our generation i think you – yeah you're somewhat younger than i am but our our generation of legal scholars the People on the right-hand side of the spectrum generally took a robust view of federal authority. But that's an honest intellectual position and there's certainly a lot of – you can certainly make a case for it. There's a lot of historical and textual support for it. But if your instinct to uphold the executive, if you have that instinct and if the peak of your personal career coincides with a person who looks like a criminal And has these national security questions, every instinct you have and every conviction you have becomes a point of vulnerability for the president to exploit. And I think that has been something of a problem with the the federal judiciary. I don't think they've been corrupted in a way that um, there there has been a shadow cast over the Department of Justice. But they are vulnerable and Trump and his Department of Justice have pressed a lot of those buttons of deference – for non-Trumpist reasons, and used it for Trumpist purposes.
0: Well, one, one of the issues with the judiciary, and I try to separate out these issues, is in, in what way is he intimidating judges by calling them out by name and by casting aspersions on them when they don't rule the way he wants them to? And I think they're pretty robust and strong in that regard. But then the other separate issue is the remaking of the judiciary, both in terms of uh, people's ideology, how conservative they are, whether they're way far right or not, which some people have a problem with their competence there have been i think a you know a higher number of people who have been deemed to be uh, unqualified by the American bar association than in any previous administration in modern times and uh, whether or not there's any diversity i saw recently something like 70 something percent of federal judges being nominated by trump are men and then the overwhelming majority white men so you know that has an impact as well but, but i consider that to be sort of separate from whether or not the judiciary is an institution, it remains independent. I tend to agree with you that I think it's doing better than some other institutions in part because the founders were smart and gave them life tenure. And that's a lot of independence when you have life tenure. And all these other folks who get attacked by the president don't have, I've always joked that if you know, you're know you a federal judge and you get on the wrong side of the president, you remain in your job. If you are a US attorney who gets on the wrong side of the president, then you have to get a podcast. Right. So, so it's a little, <laughs> it's a little different. Right. One of the things that Trump is bad at
1: is because he has an unrealistic sense of himself, he tends to be a poor – he's a very shrewd reader of psychic vulnerability. If uh, if someone has a weakness anywhere in their personality, the president finds it, as he did, has done with so many people um, who look so dominating, like Chris Christie. I mean who knew there was that that, that weak point in him, that fissure and that Trump whatever, – whatever it is, if you've got it, he finds
0: it. What was the weak point for him, for Christie?
1: uh I don't even know, but um, his resentment <laughs> his it. resentment of Marco Rubio, his sense of entitlement, his sense of who he was in the scheme of things and who other people were in the scheme of things, that, that Trump was able to use him and humiliate him as he's done to so many other people. And I don't mean to single out Chris Christie. But what, 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 while Trump is very good at finding people's psychological weak points, he's extremely bad at understanding institutions and institutional power. And that's how he lost this whole shutdown fight was he never understood how powerful the House of Representatives can be when it wants to be and how if the Speaker of the House has a solid majority behind her um, and she's dealt with dissenters and made her deals and got everybody to back her and you go up again – Anybody in the executive branch who's got a car and driver is going to discover they're walking to work. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> she controls the money, and Trump does not quite. Un- he thinks he thinks everything's a deal, and never understands that sometimes actually the formal the formal rules of the game really matter, and, th- and that makes him vulnerable against the federal judiciary. Yeah, you you do not call judges names; they don't care. Um, they might care. Um,
0: no, everyone they don't really everyone cares, care. but it, but it doesn't affect how they do their job. You know, and I've said this before. Judges have said to me that. You know, there's a little bit of um, uh, not squeamishness, but apprehension, which doesn't mean they're going to change their mind. But apprehension at the thought of being someone presiding over some case that touches upon a lawsuit against the administration or against a policy that Trump has espoused or uh, some business interest of his. And in the back of your head, wondering, well, if I rule the way I think is right to rule and it is adverse to the president's interests, is everyone in my kid's school going to learn that there's an obnoxious tweet about me by name? Yeah, that's not a lovely feeling. Um, it doesn't and change what they what they will do, but it's 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 not a lovely feeling.
1: And judges don't get as much security as a lot of people might imagine they do. And uh, if if you're a federal judge, uh, you do have to wonder: uh, might one of these tweets inspire somebody to do something?
0: So you began to touch on Congress a little bit when you're discussing the power of the. House and the Speaker when that power is chosen to be exercised. But overall, as we go down the litany of institutions, how do you think Congress has conducted itself as a co branch of government?
1: Really, really, really badly. Um, th- th- this is – of all the institutions, they're the one that has behaved maybe the worst. L- leaving aside Fox News because they don't operate by any value system. And they're, um, and they're not in the Constitution. They're not in the Constitution. <laughs> but Yet. But, yet. Trevor (laughs) Burrus There's an an amendment for you. Trevor Burrus But here's – the Congress has behaved very badly and one of the things that really went wrong in the first two years was what happened at the intelligence committees and especially the House Intelligence Committee. Now, it is always a problem to get the intelligence agencies to talk to Congress. I think a lot of people don't understand how new congressional oversight of the intelligence services is. I mean uh, until – from the founding of the FBI before the First World War, from the founding of – the CIA under its various forms during the Second World War. I mean these agencies have not even wanted very often to tell the executive what they're up to and they have never wanted to tell Congress what That's they're up true. to. Right? Yeah. And so in the 70s, Congress set up oversight committees to oversee the FBI, the CIA, the NSA and other agencies. But – even to ask the questions requires information that members of Congress often don't have. And so when you talk to people who've served on these committees, they will confess, previous to the past two years, a lot of the compli- the oversight is actually voluntary by the agencies. That they tell Congress the things or the members of these committees the things that the members need to know in order to ask intelligent questions and to do their oversight work. If they decide not to talk, Congress goes blind. They don't like talking to Congress in the first place because they think Congress blabs. But what if you have a period where the House committee in particular but also the Senate committee are overseen by people who are relentlessly politicizing the information, betraying secrets including sources and methods secrets, misusing information um, for the cheapest kind of political goals. Not only do you disgrace the committee but you harden those agencies in their dislike of congressional oversight and it's going to be I think hard to teach those agencies to get back into the habit of talking to Congress not just about Trump stuff but about everything.
0: Trevor Burrus And is it your view – that that's what happened with Devin Nunes at the helm yeah. in the house i mean i think less so in the senate yeah in my book about the trump presidency i have a chapter called
1: autoimmune disorders because i think one of the gravest things that trump is doing is he is, he creates challenges for governmental institutions that they have to that they respond to in ways that also do violence to the body politic people with at senior levels, of the military shouldn't be leaking the president's personal conversations with them. the The leaks are really bad,
0: but the, um, they've gotten better. I, I feel like, you know, a well, year they, and a half ago, they were, you know, <laughs> to coin a, a phrase, fast and furious. Yeah, and some combination but, of those people leaving, and uh, a crackdown on cell phones and other things in the White House has maybe lessened that. Yeah, but we know
1: that the president is talking all the time about quitting NATO. And that, that was a week that came about that, that just this past month, and probably originated with someone very close to James Mattis. And, and you, you think in an effort to put that out there so that there would be the appropriate backlash? It. Yeah, yeah, to kill it. Uh, that's that's often why. People, and it's it's a public spirited leak. It's a patriotic leak. It's a leak. It's a leak that has the effect of reconfirming our commitment to NATO. You know, it, it is it is a good thing when a president is in the Oval Office and says, "Here's this thing the United States government has done for the past hundred years. Why are we doing this?" Yeah. Can I can I hear some explanation? Why why shouldn't why shouldn't we change this ancient, ancient policy? Just because everyone's done it for the past hundred or eighty years, that doesn't make it sacred. That's a good conversation. That's why we have presidents, is to jolt agencies and organizations into thinking, why do we do that? Then what we hope happens is that people come in and you have a proper process and they say, Mr. President, Madam President, this is why we do it. Oh, okay, those are pretty good reasons. Or not. Why are we in NATO is not a crazy conversation to have if you know the president is not contaminated by a foreign power.
0: You say in your book, Trumpocracy, at great length, some version of, you know, Trump is not necessarily, and tell me if I have this muddled, that Trump is is not the cause of things, but a symptom of things. And you, unlike a lot of people, uh, take some time and effort to sort of characterize things that are going on in the country that have caused people to want a leader like Donald Trump, who would shake things up and who would listen to them. Because I, I have agreed with some of the premises that Donald Trump has put forward during the campaign. I, I do think people have been forgotten. I do think there's a swamp. I do think a lot of the system is rigged. Those are all correct assessments of the system. And a lot of people, whether you've been left behind or not, uh, believe that to be true. The, my dispute is how you go about dealing with it and making it better. But the underlying you know, issues are there. And you, you have this, I'm told that this is on your homepage, davidfrum.com. And so I want you to talk about this a little bit. Those who seem to despise half of America will never be trusted to govern any of it. What, yeah, what do you mean by right. that? And, and what do you think the state of affairs is in the country that led to us being here? That quote comes from the final chapter
1: of a book I published in 2012 after the that election called Why Romney Lost. I should say here, I mean, I I remain a Republican by I mean it becomes pretty notional at this point. I haven't cast a republican vote in a while but that still sort of feels like my home. And I had a lot of personal admiration for Mitt Romney and I thought he would have made a fine, fine president and I became very disturbed by the course of that campaign. And I think Romney had like the elder Bush a vision that you guys get me elected and I'll be a good president and how I get there doesn't matter and I'll make whatever deals I have to in order to get there and be a good president. That culminated with um, the 47 percent
0: remark. Remind people what that comment was.
1: Well, Romney was talking about how – I forget what the data is now. But at that time, about half of Americans paid no federal personal income tax. Many Americans pay many other taxes including the payroll tax. Um, They pay excise taxes of course on their gasoline or alcohol if they drink alcohol, cigarettes if they smoke cigarettes and of course they pay state and local taxes. So it's not true that half the country pays no taxes. But half the country approximately paid no federal personal income tax. And so it became a talking point that these people were the takers who were leeching off the makers. And Romney was a person of extraordinary compassion and generosity and um, a lot of empathetic insight into the ordinary person. But this point, which had been said over and over again, Romney was talking to um, a bunch of rich people in somebody's um, living room in Florida. And someone, I think the bartender, videoed him making this point about how for the 47%, that is the people who are not paying the income tax. They're going to vote for the Democrat for rational reasons. And he seemed to be writing off half the country. I think that's not exactly what he meant in any way. It's a false number. But it referred to, to this, that if you, if you talk that way, you have to be president of all of America. Among the many things that are so wrong with Donald Trump, he's, he's just given up on the, that project. I mean, he always talks about why well, I'm popular with my base. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Every politician is popular with the base. That's <laughs> yeah. why it's called the base. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like M- M- McCain, McCain used to say when he addressed the press, right? It's good to talk to you, my base. So you need to be president even with people who are never going to vote for you. You can't please everybody, of
1: course. And of course, you have a political coalition to manage. But once you get into that lofty – office with that vast point of view, you need to be thinking about everybody.
0: But how do you compare that remark and what it says about this issue of division and writing off a large segment of the population to, again, probably you know overstated and overblown, uh, overheard statement by Hillary Clinton about the deplorables? Are they similar? And how do you compare them to each other?
1: They're similar in their impact. These statements always have power when they're in the context of other things that people are hearing. Uh, they were both equally devastating, the candidate. So you hear the Hillary Clinton comment about deplorables and she said half of Trump supporters are deplorable. And I think what she meant – but what she was trying to say is half of you know rule of thumb, half of what is driving him is racial animosity and half of what is driving him is economic discontent and that was the point she was trying to make, I think. But we are living in a period in which there's a kind of elite cultural backlash against the people who – seemed to have power and privilege in the country a generation ago and so people use white male as an epithet all the time as a way of dis- invalidating or disqualifying. I'm a white male. I shrug it off. I have a pretty good life and indeed I do have a lot of unearned privileges um, and I'm you know, always mindful of them. But if you're one of the white males whose life expectancy has been declining over the past generation, who's earning less money than his father was at his age finds himself in a part of the country where jobs are scarce but whose house is so worthless and facing rent so high that he can't move to a place where jobs are more available and which would still would actually probably make his standard of living worse off after he computed all the things he had to pay for. And people are telling you all the time about how you have it so great. You're going to go bananas when you hear that. And when it comes out of the mouth of a politician, that's going to feel like a very personal attack. I don't think that's what Hillary Clinton meant. But one of the things that makes politics such a grinding, difficult
0: business uh,
1: is that you're accountable, not for what you meant, but for what people hear.
0: Right. and But a good politician will predict uh, what the reaction to some statement is going to be. And if you predict well, um, which is not to say people should censor themselves and become robots. And this is, the, this is the conundrum, right? Politicians who do too much of what I just described, they might do, which is to f- test out in a back room with consultants. Uh, if I say something this way, is it going to be taken the wrong way? Is it going to be uh, used against me? Is it going to be twisted, taken out of context? Which, you know, may be a wise thing to do on one hand, as we've been discussing, but on the other hand, it makes you sound like a totally rehearsed, mechanical, inauthentic loser, which is also something people don't like anymore. So, you know, I I actually have some empathy for politicians and how they have to, you know, thread the the needle on the one hand, be authentic, on the other hand, in this climate and time where people are out to distort what you say and use your words against you. How do you how do you thread that needle?
1: Oh, I have total not only empathy but respect for them. I think it's one of the most under-respected jobs in our society. They are the people who are specialists in the gaining of democratic consent for governmental projects. All governments rest on consent of greater or lesser parts of the population, and a democratic government rests on consent from more of the population. And gaining that consent is really difficult, and for most of them, the, the rewards are very meager, and They do it for spiritual and emotional reasons that are a little hard for people who don't do that kind of work to understand. And the communication part of it is so difficult. Here's a thing about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump that um, I was struck by. So about a month before the election – and I cite this in Trumpocracy. There's a survey um, that asks people – maybe two weeks out. It's very close to the election – to rate Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump in a bunch of vectors. This was not a good survey for Donald Trump on most of the vectors cares about people like you, competent, intelligent. Hillary Clinton did better than him in almost every vector. But there was one vector, the one where Donald Trump most decisively won was the vector honest. Now you think, how can that be? (laughs) He's the biggest liar ever. And yes, that's true. But what I think that what people meant by that was when Hillary Clinton talked, she talked like a politician. Politicians try to avoid lying by equivocating. Are you for or against the this highway project that half the people in town like and half the people in town don't like? <laughs> ma, 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 ma.
0: No, right before I came into the studio, I was watching cable television. I don't even remember the name of the politician, but there's the question on the, on the negotiation over the border wall. The anchor was asking a very reasonable question to a Democratic, I think, committee chair, and said, "Is money for a wall on the table?" And the and the Congress person <laughs> kept saying here's what I'm saying, and then wouldn't answer the question. And of course that person knew and answered the question and didn't say it. So they sounded dishonest. Whereas Donald Trump,
1: who's capable of lying, he always answers forthrightly so he seems honest. There's my favorite of all um, political quotations, and one of my favorites is from a Canadian politician whom most listeners to this podcast will never have heard of, named Mackenzie King. And he was Prime Minister during World War II. And there was a huge battle in Canada over conscription, the draft. I won't Go into the details. And, and Mackenzie King, who's the longest serving politician in Canadian history, longest serving Prime Minister, was finally put in a place where he could not avoid the question. And he answered: conscription, if necessary, but not necessarily conscription.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did he say that in French? Did he say that in French or English?
1: In those days you could say it in one official <laughs> language. But but that's that's talking like a politician. But yeah. what he's trying to say is It's going to be, I guarantee this is my absolute last alternative, but I can't promise I will never do it. That's what
0: he said. Yeah, look, there is a lesson. It seems odd, you you know, given circumstances, given my views on policy and other kinds of rhetoric that comes out of the president's mouth, that there are lessons to be learned and skills to be gained on the part of a smart politician who otherwise is decent and honorable and doesn't lie. I mean, I thought, I watched those debates, the Republican debates, when you had 16 people on the stage. And I think Donald Trump had a a great moment when he spoke something that no other Republican would speak and it actually happened to be true. And I don't remember the exact circumstances and who was making the point, but I think it was Jeb Bush. Somebody was bragging about how safe his brother, George Bush, kept America and how there were no major terror attacks. And he just sort of, I guess, something (laughs) slipped his mind. He meant, you know, after a certain point in time in September of 2001, but he made some, you know, flat statement about how, how great his brother was on national security. And Donald Trump, again, I forget in what words he, he said it. But he's like, you know, basically, you got to be freaking kidding me. 9-11 happened on his watch. Yeah. It's an obvious well, point, And it's true. Unlike a lot of other things he said. And it and it, you know what, it made my ears prick up. Because no one else would say something like that, even though it's absolutely true. People are just ignoring the elephant in the room.
1: Look, when Donald Trump first appeared on the scene in the summer, it was as a declared candidate, as he's been on the scene forever, as a declared candidate in the summer of 2015. I thought he could do some good for the Republican world. I assumed it was inconceivable that he would win the nomination, never mind be president. Obviously, that was impossible. But I thought he could do some good, and, you, and what you just said is an example of it. I mean, Iraq, 9-11, this was, to use the language of Freudian psychology, this was a trauma in the Republican Party, and it had been repressed. And in the Freudian scheme, when you have a trauma and you repress it, The trauma manifests itself as neurosis and a lot of the things that happened in the Republican world after the crisis of 2008 seemed to me to originate in that party had never had a conversation with itself about Iraq and about 9-11. What was right? What was wrong? What did we learn? How are we going to make sure that the things that were mistakes don't happen again? How do we build on things we did that we believe were right and how do we defend the things that we think were right while accepting – Criticism for the things that we acknowledge were wrong. How do you do any of that? And, then, and what are the things that we got right? That, that's the kind of conversation that healthy political organizations can have with themselves. And it just sort of lay there like, like something like a dead body on the carpet that nobody could acknowledge and the body began to smell. And, are you going to continue and, this metaphor for much longer? <laughs> we won't. And, the, and Donald Trump was—he was, was willing to talk about it. And it, it was once he said it, he was, it was an obviously crazy proposition to nominate Jeb Bush for uh, president because you had to, there was no way you could do it and not talk about Iraq. Lots of people with vast amounts of money who presumably are not fools convinced themselves that you could nominate Jeb Bush for president and go through a whole cycle without ever talking about Iraq. How could you think such a thing? And yet people did.
0: They did. You know, what, so one of the things I respect about you is an inclination fast vanishing from public life, and that is a an openness to debate and put yourself in a vulnerable position in front of a lot of people with someone who you really disagree with and whose views you don't actually want to find footing in the public. And so you do this, you know, unabashedly in a lot of different circumstances. But the one I want to talk about and have you explain a little bit your thinking on and what it felt like personally was you agreed to debate Steve Bannon, who many yes. people would say is the architect of, of Donald Trump's victory. But not only that, but a leading advocate of sort of the theory of populism in the world. And he, as you have said, is a significant figure. He helped change the course of American history by electing Donald Trump. And he's advising a number of people in Europe as well. And there's a famous lecture series in, in Toronto, correct? Yeah. Called the Monk Debate. And you agreed to debate him and then all hell broke loose. What happened?
1: <laughs> the Monk debate has its debates in a concert hall in downtown Toronto. It holds about 3,000 people. And so there's a big gap in opinion in Canadian society about this event. So much so that there were not only very large scale protests but actually protests that turned by Canadian standards somewhat violent. A policeman was attacked and injured. Um, a- about the bench- very fact of the debate. The fact that about Bannon, the fact Bannon that. would have a platform on a stage. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. They were much less, much less attention to the fact that I was there. How am I from? You seem it's like, like the a pla- nice guy. <laughs> it's like the, the, the plane crash also among the killed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, um, some, then there was a technical glitch, which is the counting system broke. Uh, they didn't know that. And so what they put up was as, as if it were the number that had just voted who won the debate. One of the uh, answers to one of the questions, you know, one of the questions that were posed before the debate and it was one that se- seemed to indicate mistakenly that Steve Bannon had won the debate because it was a different question that had been asked before right. the
0: debate. And not only that, that he, that he had crushed you because of how many right. minds he had changed even though it didn't – I think you've written – even though in the room at the time, it didn't seem like his, his views were gaining a lot of purchase.
1: I mean, you, you're, you're on a stage, you speak on a stage, you know what's happened in the room. But what I was concerned about was the impact on this because, and this goes to the question of why I'd done this thing. So I'm not one of those people who believes the more speech, the better. Um, you know, let's debate everything. Let's debate whether women should be men slaves. I, I, I don't think we need to debate that. Um, should any, or is slavery good? I don't think you debate it because that's,
0: you know, um, there's some questions. You don't want to give the, you know, because it's not possible to say all debate is good because there are some views that are so discredited. That to give a forum or a platform to someone who has a racist view or a horribly misogynistic view is to elevate that point of view. And there's sometimes there are points of
1: view that are so different where you realize there isn't an appeal to reason here. I'll go back to Bannon in a minute, but the question was sometimes asked, would you debate Hitler? One of the reasons to study history is so that you have other analogies um, at hand uh, other than the Hitler analogy. (laughs) Is that Um, really the question?
0: I thought the question was always, would you kill baby Hitler? But I guess debating (laughs) debating Hitler is another one (laughs) in Uh, certain circles. And and what year are we talking about?
1: Because there come points where there are differences that are adjudicated by violence. But if I were a German liberal in 1926 um, during the Weimar Republic, yeah, I would because I'd be trying to mobilize public opinion. Then there comes the point where assassination is your only tool and then finally there comes a you know, gigantic war embracing all the earth is the only tool. But the reason I wanted to, to debate Bannon and it wasn't just that I, – I was very keen to do it was the timing of the debate was very important. The debate took place on the Friday before the Tuesday vote in the midterms and it took place in Toronto City that is the most important city in a country that had been a special target of Donald Trump's animus. And – People who believed in the liberal democratic world order, free trade, NATO, basically, we've been losing since 2014. And I thought that what what I could do here was on the Friday before the Tuesday, when I was certain the waters were about to change, put down a marker. This is the high tide of the Confederacy, my friend. (laughs) It's over for you guys. From here on, you're losing all the way. And so the topic of the debate was not – is Trumpism good? The topic of the debate was – never forget the exact wording but it was a predictive question. Does the future belong to populism? And I thought it was useful to put down a marker at that place at that time to say the future does not belong to populism. You start losing and you start losing Tuesday and you will now never stop losing. And my purpose was not to exactly change minds but to give heart to people who I, I knew had shared my view but who were more pessimistic at that point about what the future would hold. I wanted to give people encouragement. I knew this was going to be on YouTube over that weekend before the vote. And I, this was a way to send a message that would inspire people and make them believe that change was possible. And the belief in the
0: efficacy change is hugely important in getting people actually to do change. What is your advice to people who don't get invited to be on a stage with 2,800 participants uh, in Toronto or New York or – Los Angeles or somewhere else, but all these debates that are happening in homes and schools and in communities around the country where people have a point of view and we're just gearing up for the 2020 election, which I want to ask you about as well. And they had people in their communities who disagree with them. And there's some people who say, well, you know, if you want to maintain harmony at the Thanksgiving table, for example, you stay away from politics. But I think there's an argument to be made that it's so important that people should engage, not with invective and not by yelling and not with violence. But based on your own sort of professional public square debating experience, what advice do you have for ordinary people who you think want to persuade other people to their point of view in a, in a way that works?
1: Oh, that's a great question. There are people who give you like tricks, how you crush your opponent. But here, here's the way I would think about it. One of the most skilled politicians of, of our lifetime, Bill Clinton. Let me start with this story about him. So in, the, in 1992, he's running his George... H.W. Bush, the incumbent president, Ross Perot. And there were three debates and one of them was a town hall format. And this is literally the I feel your pain moment, although he never said those words. One of the questioners was an older woman, obviously extremely nervous about being on TV for probably the only time in her life and seemingly not very well educated. And so she asked in a very nervous sounding voice, I would like to ask each of the candidates how you personally have been affected by the deficit. The elder Bush flubs it. Uh, Ross Perot says something characteristically insane. And, um, and Bill, Bill Clinton, with that huge body of his steps toward her and like sort of exuding warmth through his body, says, I'll answer your question. But I, before that, I have a question for you. How have you personally been affected by the deficit? And she began to answer. And as she answered, it became clear that either because she was mixed up or because she had never known the difference in the first place, she didn't mean the deficit. She meant the recession that was also happening that year. And once Bill Clinton got to the question behind the question, he was able just to knock the ball out of
0: the park. Yeah, because he was listening. He listened. He was listening. And you know, there are a lot. Of, he's got a lot of flaws and a lot of issues that people can raise with him. But the reason he was the most successful Democrat in a generation was that he listened to people, and he did so in a way that people believed they were being listened to. Right. Right. But he also understood
1: that for most people, the language of politics is not their first language, and behind it, there are profounder questions, personal questions of dignity and respect, that's what they're really talking about in this strange world where um, uh, things aren't natural to them. And so I I think one of the things you need to do is reach behind – assuming the person – I mean there are people who often take political views just because they're jerks and enjoy being jerks. And toxic people, the only thing to do with them is get them out of your life. So if you've got an uncle (laughs) who just likes being being obnoxious (laughs) because he thinks it's fun to tease and demean – Get rid of this view. You have to invite every uncle through Thanksgiving. You really don't. Just don't invite him. But if there's someone who you think is is basically a decent and worthwhile person but has views that you think are mistaken or, mis- or uninformed, think back to the occasions when you and your life have been wrong. And how have you been reached when you've been wrong? What is What has worked on you? And it's always the appeal to the best in you. The person finds something in you
0: that you are proud of. Right. Well, I think part of the problem is um, if I were dealing with such a person, I would not talk you know, in a declarative way first, I would ask a lot of questions. I'm actually curious. When someone has a view that I think is completely off the mark and nuts, my first reaction is, is maybe, but I keep that internal, is like, wow, that's nuts. But my second reaction is like, why do you have this so opinion that I don't agree with? So what is it about that view or that position or that policy that you find good? And then, you know, that's how you find out for that particular person, you know, is it based on, on fear? Is it based on the lack of knowledge about a particular point in that policy, is it because uh, they have prejudice? Is it because, uh, you know, someone told them something otherwise? It is a long, you know, long-held view in the family, and so they just inherited the view. There are all different reasons why people hold their views. And in some ways you can't, despite my asking the broad question, you can't have a monolithic, you know, one-size-fits-all approach to persuading people, which is why in that example with Bill Clinton, you know, he was very particular to that woman. And you, you persuade people you know, one at a time, I guess. But so then this leads me to the question, looking forward, if you are a a Democratic candidate for president, and there is the, uh, you know, huge number of people who believe they're not respected by the anti-Trump folks, and by definition, the Democratic candidate, all of them will be, and you want to avoid the Hillary Clinton deplorable debacle, what is the way in which you reach out not only to the Democratic base, although that will be where people are attacking because it's a primary, of course. Mm-hmm. But what's the way you think, given this conversation and you're thinking about it, that they speak to folks who who voted for Trump but get them to change their mind and vote for the new person? Well,
1: I'm not a Democrat and it's not my first language to go back to that language of politics. And I also think the politician's task is a little different from our task as members of our communities and cities. We have – we have to deal with all kinds of people. Uh, the task for the Democratic candidate for president is not to reach Trump's strongest supporters. The task is to reach Trump's weakest supporters. They are the most important people in the electorate. The soft – the people who didn't like Trump much but thought he was better than the alternative. Because the people who love him, they're going to vote for him. He's, no, you know, yeah, the there's Democratic nothing to candidate. do about
0: those people because yeah, – Maybe there is but it's not worth it. I mean, I mean, it, was it, tr- it was true of Obama supporters. probably true of Clinton supporters. Any, any national politician who has gotten elected has a core of support. Uh, even Nixon did. Up until yeah. the end, it's not.
1: You're not going to get 100 percent of the vote, and it's it's you know improper to try because uh, the only way you get it is by being. Uh, this is the, the problem with the Howard Schultz candidacy. Howard Schultz says my goal here is to end the division. You never end division. Division is good. Democracies need division. The whole point of elections is to is to refine the. It's like the work of the lawyer. You refine the pleadings, um, so the finder of fact and the finder of law can make their adjudication based on a refined pleading. That's what politicians do. You know, and and every politician needs to be satisfied with a lot less than 100 percent. So the job for the democratic candidate – and this is a very hard job – is first mobilize the core of the democratic constituency. One of the reasons Hillary Clinton is not president was Barack Obama energized black America. I mean black Americans always voted percentage terms very heavily for democrats. But the question is, are they motivated and excited and believe in the worthwhileness of the vote to come out? So in 2008, black America came out in enormous numbers. The reason Romney thought he was going to win the 2012 election was he could chart that in every other demographic group, Obama's support had gone down. And he believed that Obama had already hit the peak possible turnout in black America. And the reason Obama won was despite dropping in almost every other demographic category, he exceeded his own record in 2012. 2012 is the only election in American history where black Americans were more likely to show up to vote than white Americans were. So you got this incredible performance concentrated especially among older people and they stayed home in 2016. Maybe they were discouraged by voter suppression but as we saw, they showed up in 2018. So mobilizing and motivating the core groups in the Democratic coalition, that's the first step. And the second thing is to reach to the soft Trump supporters, the people, oh, I don't like them but Hillary Clinton seems worse and to reassure them. I think one of the things – this is the good thing about the Howard Schultz candidacy. I wrote it, it was for The Atlantic a couple of days Yeah,
0: ago. I was going to talk about that before we go.
1: Is he's reminding Democrats, do not turn 2020 into a contest of who is the most progressive person in your party. That's tempting because Trump looks weak and you think, why not go for the gusto? Why not nominate the person we really like? It's also a way for Democrats to channel some of the dissatisfaction that some of the more left-wing Democrats have with President Obama that they've never been able to articulate. But while the the weight and thrust of the democratic vote is going to come from the core constituencies who are mobilized in 2020 in a way they weren't in 2016, the thing that locks this thing in, that makes it certain rather than uncertain is picking up people in suburbs, especially women, who have more to lose than maybe the typical democrat does economically, culturally, socially and reassuring them that this – you know, although the country's going to shift a little bit to the left now, it's not going to do so in such a scary way that you have to defend, uh, adhere to Trump in self-defense.
0: So Howard Schultz, you mentioned a couple of times, is the former Starbucks CEO who's said he might run for president as an independent. You wrote in your in your piece in The Atlantic, the Starbucks founder, Howard Schultz, is the Twitter villain of the hour. And I will admit that I contributed to, to that. <laughs> and I, I myself, based on the hypothesis that, you know, the theory that if he runs as an independent, he will siphon votes from the Democrat, and if you believe as many people do, including conservatives, that it's important that Donald Trump be defeated in uh, 2020, isn't it reasonable for, for people to be upset that Howard Schultz is running? And it would be one thing if you ran in the, in the Democratic primary on this message of reasonableness and not tacking too far to the left, that's his right. And obviously he says in response to that, you can't win a Democratic primary that way. But isn't it, isn't it reasonable for a particular group of voters that they spurn... The Schultz candidacy. If this were
1: 15 months from now, and we're getting uh, to the time of the conventions, and Schultz is still persisting with his vanity project, then I would totally agree with you. So, what's the point now? You, you, he should he should test the waters and make the point. No, the point the, the value that he's doing, the service that he's doing, is I think uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are competing to see who can outflank to the left. There's this constant series of to the left flanking motions. The, the, there's a criticism of Kamala Harris. She's got an obstacle to overcome because she was a former prosecutor. And like your group, God forbid, <laughs> Harris. Hor- <laughs> <Get up, horrors. laughs> right right. ways in a Republican primary it would be a good thing if you'd been a public defender. You know, that's one of the things I tell my Republican friends who are interested in public service: go be a public defender for a while, broaden your resume out that way. Uh, for a Democrat, it's a good thing to have been on the other side, uh, to be with law enforcement. But there's this contest going on, and the the reason that so many progressives were freaked out is they think well we just have to win the contest to be the most progressive and then we can leverage our control the whoever is the most progressive into control of the Democratic party and then leverage donald trump's unpopularity to do a kind of buyout of power that we could never otherwise have earned and Schultz's advent and he's probably not going to last that long but he's a remote, and the, the reaction that people are having is to say wait a minute there are a lot of people of soft Trump voters who are not loving this performance with Warren and Kamala Harris and and Bernie Sanders, and the Shul- the Schultz entries remind you. You know what Democrats? Only about a f- little less than a fifth of the country is progressive, and that's a lot of people. And where does that stat come from? I, I think the, the the rule of thumb is when you ask people, are you do you regard yourself as liberal? Well, that's a great question. Do, do people know what they mean? Right. when they say liberal. Right. But when you ask it could, the question, it could, like are you- it, it
0: could be like the deficit again.
1: Right. But when you ask the question, are you conservative, are you moderate, are you liberal, that uh, the liberal or progressive number bounces around when liberals are doing badly uh, in the middle 90s and the high teens and right now they're doing well, so they're in the low 20s. Um, the conservative number is usually around a third and the moderate number is you know, usually around 40, 40-ish percent. And those numbers are pretty – right now, the um, the moderate number has been shrinking and the liberal number has been rising, the conservative number holding more or less firm. But it's a good rule of thumb. A third of the country thinks of itself as conservative. A fifth of the country thinks of itself as liberal. So the disadvantage that conservatives have is when you're a third of the country, you can believe you're a majority. When you're a fifth of the country, you cannot believe that. You have to know you're a minority. And And that's why the Democratic Party is always a more ramshackle coalition than the Republican.
0: Do you have a prediction of who the Democratic nominee
1: will be? I, I don't because – I think when you into, are into this kind of bumper car race with so many candidates that very small events can have very big consequences. It's not a world – I don't have a tactile sense of how democratic primary voters think. So it's very hard for – it's not something I can easily enter right. into. And that
0: changes. Um, I'm not sure how they think uh, <laughs> you know, because – and I didn't follow these things so closely. I was relatively young in 1992 but you know, there's a difference between – Democrats thinking, uh, you know, we want to have a certain kind of future, we want to have a certain kind of person embody our values versus thinking the most important thing is victory. And when the most important thing is victory, I'm not saying that this is good or bad. And I feel like this was a little bit true in 1992. When the most important thing is victory, people will compromise and not have a full purity test. And I don't know if we're at that point or not.
1: There's a third way to think, and I, I would hope this is the way Democratic voters think, and this may require more self-control than people have. But what I would hope is that they would think, you know what, this is an opportunity if you're prepared to gamble for the Democrats to achieve a lot of priorities they probably couldn't otherwise achieve. But it's also a calling. The country's broken in a lot of ways. It's more corrupt. It's more dysfunctional. Um, Its good name has been besmirched. And maybe what this moment calls for is not the opportunity to sort of take advantage of the unpopularity of the incumbent to advance a lot of priorities you otherwise wouldn't have been able to advance, but actually to fix the country. And that means thinking big, looking for a a large-spirited person. I mean I I disagreed with just about everything uh, President Obama did. But when he stepped onto the public stage in 2004, you could see you were dealing with an enormous personality, a real figure of American history as a human being that he was going to rank with the largest names that Americans remember. Um, whether he got every call right or not. I, I hope uh, Democratic primary voters will be will be looking to that, looking for who is the person here where not just they're saying what I like, but even when they say what I don't like, I hear some human greatness in that
0: person. David Frum, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. What an honor. To end the show this week, I want to tell you a story or at least part of a story That you'll read about more fully in the book I have coming out. The sixth chapter of my book starts as follows. Let me just read the paragraph to you. The return address was 354 Hunter Street, Ossining, New York, 10562. That's the address of the maximum security New York State Penitentiary known as Sing Sing. The letter was dated April 11th, 2012, and came from inmate 97A7088. That was the number assigned to Eric Glisson when he was incarcerated 17 years earlier for the murder of a Bronx livery cab driver named Baith Diop. The letter was addressed to a gang prosecutor in my office who had long since left SDNY, but it nevertheless made its way to the inbox of one of the office's veteran investigators, John O'Malley. The note from Eric Glisson made a dramatic but not uncommon claim. I have been incarcerated for 17 years for a crime I didn't commit. And the reason I mention that story and give a preview of something that hopefully many of you will read about in a few weeks is that I began teaching at NYU Law School again this past semester. I teach a seminar on the elements of criminal justice, and I have a bunch of great students uh, who are eager to learn about the criminal justice process. And I brought a special guest to my class. And my special guest was Peter Cross, who was the tireless lawyer for Eric Glisson, who wrote that letter that I just described. And in my entire time at the U.S. Attorney's Office, when I ran that place, one of the most inspiring things that ever happened was the work done after he received the letter by John O'Malley, veteran investigator of my office, principally, along with other people, including Margaret Garnett, who was Chief of Violent Crimes at the time, to work day after day after day to corroborate the story of Eric Listen and five other people who are in prison for crimes they did not commit. And so I think from time to time as we discuss the role of prosecutors and some questions were asked about that that I answered at the beginning of the show and the discussion of you know, whether or not they make good candidates for office and whether or not we should think about criminal justice in a particular way, it is important to remember, as I often try to remind folks in my office, that you run just as fast to exonerate the innocent as you do to convict the guilty. And the most inspiring story from my time was the way in which John O'Malley and Margaret Garnett, Glisson's lawyer, Peter Cross, went against another prosecutor's office, uh, a district attorney's office that was reluctant over time to undo what it had done before, uh, a little bit slow, I hate to say, to right the wrong. In this particular case, the reason that John O'Malley was struck by the letter he read was that it described a crime that sounded eerily similar to a crime that he had already heard about. A shooting in the same time period, in the same place in the Bronx. And the reason he had heard about it before, he had been the lead investigator on prosecuting and flipping two men some years earlier who had, in the course of their cooperation agreement process with the government, with the SDNY, confessed to that crime. And so, but for John O'Malley reading that letter... But for John O'Malley deciding he wanted to go back into the facts, re-interview the two men who had told him about the crime years earlier, read the trial transcripts of Eric Listen's case and his co-defendants, and his resolve to get justice done, it would not have been. And a tragic miscarriage that was already in place for 17 years probably would have been forever. So I was just reminded of the good work that prosecutors and investigators do sometimes with defense lawyers, who teamed up together to make sure that justice was done for Eric Lisson and five other human beings who lost most of their adult life because there was a miscarriage of justice. So it's just a reaffirmation of a central point that sometimes gets lost in public debate, whether you're talking about Bob Mueller's office or you're talking about SDNY or you're talking about various DA's offices. Justice is not about putting people in prison. Justice is about doing the right thing. And sometimes that means getting people out of prison just like it sometimes means not prosecuting people, just like it sometimes means giving people a second chance. All those things, depending on the circumstances, are important, vital, and central to not only doing justice, but having people have faith that justice is being done. Those are the kinds of things I talk about in my class. Those are the kinds of things that I think you know I talk about on the show, and the kinds of things I talk about in the book. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, David Frum. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to at Cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by Kat Aaron and the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Joel Lovell, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. The executive producer at CAFE is Tamara Sepper. And the CAFE team is Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now. When feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.